Uh, many of you know this, but uh, I'm a huge sucker for a documentary. Huge sucker. Um, I, I'm a kind of a people person, I guess, as part of being a pastor. And, um, and so I really got into this Woody Allen documentary a while back. And uh, Woody Allen, I didn't know anything about him. I knew that he was uh, into the movie kind of thing, but um, I learned a lot about him. Um, he's he's uh, either directed, produced, uh, or written uh, 40 movies. Uh, and they all have this really similar uh, theme. They're really self-absorbed into his own, <laughs> in his own psyche. Uh, uh, Woody Allen was unapologetic to say that the inspiration for his, uh, his art um, is his psychoanalysis, that he's been in therapy uh, for over 40 years. Uh, and he says he does so not for his own uh, benefit for how he might be a better human being, but for his work that that's what comes to bear. And so what he's seen in his 40 years of therapy is a lot of darkness. He has a tough story and um, he's seen a lot of darkness, a lot of hopelessness. And, uh, and what he's done to kind of deal with these dark themes in his work is that he throws in a lot of humor. And uh, the reason that he does it is so that you as the viewer wouldn't bail on him when he's exposing these dark themes because you've been laughing with him. And he says that his work is really reflective of his life. He says, um, one of the things he, he asks about his life, he says, um, despite all my lucky breaks, why do I still feel like I got screwed? That's a great question, isn't it? See, what he's doing in his work and in his life is that he's tasting hope with his comedy, but he just hasn't found the truth. And isn't that where you find yourself tonight? Aren't you on this journey where you're asking questions like, who am I? Do my choices have significance? Am I loved? Why does it feel like I'm getting screwed? See, our hearts, they yearn for answers to these kind of questions. And our hearts yearn for that because we're on a quest for the truth. It's a quest kind of like you see people on the beach. They've got their metal detectors and they're looking for something. It's like a kid looking for an Easter egg. It's like an archaeologist looking for some ancient remains of a distant civilization. But ours is inward. And we just want to bend over. We want to clutch. We want to display. And we want to proclaim the truth so that our hearts can be settled. And so we can just go on our merry way and we can have confidence that our lives actually matter. See, Woody Allen was searching for the truth, and so are we. And today in our text, in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see a man who's searching for the truth. And we would do well to learn what God does with seekers. Uh, so let's read our text for today. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning and seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, 
and like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. So I really want to ask two questions from this text right here. Uh, who finds the truth? And the second one, how do we find the truth? Who finds it and how do we find it? Let's deal with the first one. Uh, who finds the truth? Right there in the first couple of verses there, starting in verse 26 down to verse 28, you get a glimpse of the type of person who finds the truth. And what we see as we break down each, each of these descriptors uh, of the man that Philip encounters is that you'll find, and I will find, that it's all kinds of, it's all kinds of people, regardless of their race, their sexual brokenness, or the socioeconomic class that find the truth. So let's deal with this one at a time. Let's look at the race piece. Uh, you have Philip in here. Philip's the preacher. Uh, Philip is a Christian, uh, but he has a Jewish background and he's from Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God calls him to find the man that we see described in verses 27 and 28. And the man that we find described here is an Ethiopian. Now, if you're not real good at your geography, I'm not great. And what you would find is that Jerusalem is there along the Mediterranean Sea. And if you keep going south, like you're going to Africa, Ethiopia is in Africa. It's a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And Ethiopia, at least to the Jews, was the farthest end of the earth. They didn't know that there was, any, that there was a whole continent beneath Ethiopia. And so you really would be hard-pressed to find two people who are more different than one another than the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. But to make matters worse, not just their difference, but really the, the, um, uh, the hatred that Jews had for anyone different than them. A Jewish males, every morning when they woke up, they prayed this prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, Philip grew up praying this prayer. He becomes a Christian, and he's got a lot to overcome, doesn't he? And now he encounters someone who clearly is a Gentile. He's got a lot to overcome. He's got these cultural barriers. And what the Spirit of God is always do, doing, even in the Old Testament, it's to overcome these cultural barriers. And so we see God at work here. God's at work here in the early church to make sure that, that the gospel isn't just for Jews. And this is tough for them. And last week we saw that the gospel was for Samaritans. And this week we're seeing that the gospel is for Africans. But what does this have to do with me and you? I don't know anybody from Ethiopia. But it still has a lot to do with us. And here's why. 
we know better than to pray prayers like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. But our hearts are still there. We do still prefer to believe that Christianity is confined to people like us. So I've got to ask you a couple questions. Have you blindly or unconsciously thought that Christianity was not for you because you aren't of a particular race? Or conversely, have, have you blindly or unconsciously thought that the gospel was only for those of your race? And what we see in the gospel is that a key byproduct of it is that it gives us a more powerful platform than race for us to connect with other people. But usually our requirement for connecting with other people is our unstated requirement for friendship is race and socioeconomics. We'd never admit it, nor are we usually even conscious of it, but the gospel forces us to be aware of these realities because the Spirit's desire is to overcome these cultural barriers. So who finds the truth? All kinds of races. That's what we see with the Ethiopian. We also see that who finds the truth are people with all kinds of sexual brokenness. So sure, the eunuch was a different class, but the eunuch was sexually altered. That's what it means to be a eunuch. To be a eunuch is to be castrated. And you might say, well, why would anyone do that? What a terrible idea. Well, here's why. Uh, castration was required for all male members, or for all male non-family members in a royal household. So the eunuch was in the royal household in Ethiopia. Candace was the queen. And for the, the eunuch to be truly tested, he must be castrated because then he could be trusted with the money. He couldn't be bribed with sexual favors if that was the case. It also ensured that the royal bloodlines wouldn't get mixed by having him castrated. Now there's even more shame to this because he's been, we read that he's been to Jerusalem. Now he's coming back and when he goes to Jerusalem because of the Mosaic law, he couldn't get into the temple. He had to stand on the farthest outskirts of the temple complex because he is considered to be unclean in his altered sexual state. But this whole discussion of eunuchs, it's awkward, isn't it? I mean, I feel really strange up here talking about eunuchs. Why is that? I think it's really awkward because our sexuality is what brings us the most shame in our lives. But our sexuality is very much part of what it means to be a human being. It's the way God made us. But because of our fallen state, we feel this shame around our sexuality. And what the eunuch tells us is that a shameful sexuality does not prevent us from being pursued by the grace of the Jesus Christ. So who finds the truth? People of all races, people of all kinds of sexual brokenness. And the last thing we see is it comes from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. See, what we read about is we see his job description, don't you? That he's a court official, in the, in, in, a court official of Candace. Well, he's extraordinarily wealthy. He's kind of like the CFO for Ethiopia. He, he's, a, he's a VIP in one of the most powerful uh, governments of the ancient Near East. I mean, think about it. I mean, anyone who can afford to take off for a year to go on a spiritual pilgrimage has some cash. And he's not the only person with cash in the book of Acts. 
You see Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She's got money. She's got a big enough home to host large gatherings. And then in Acts chapter 10, we read about a guy named Cornelius. He becomes a Christian, and he's a wealthy Roman official. So there's wealthy people who find the truth in the book of Acts, but then there's poor folk who find the truth in the book of Acts. You see it in Acts chapter 6 when we read about the widows. You see it in Acts chapter 9 when you have a guy who's paralyzed. You see it in Acts chapter 3 when a blind man is healed. So there's this socioeconomic diversity in the church in Acts that mirrors the kind of socioeconomic diversity that Jesus engaged in. He, he, he engaged with rich people. He, he engaged with poor folks. Why is that? Well, it's because poor people and rich people, we have the same problem. We have a sinful heart. Poor people and rich people, they're in need of salvation. Therefore, Jesus is coming after all kinds of socioeconomic classes. So do you see this inclusive gospel at work here? It makes you ask the question, well, how can the rich, the poor, people of different races, people of sexual brokenness, all take part in Christianity? Well, it's because Christianity is about grace. But human beings, especially religious ones like us, we begin to draw lines about who's in and who's out. And those lines are usually based on our own conditions. But the gospel only draws one line. It has one exclusive principle about who's in and who's out. Here's who's in in the gospel. It's the needy. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who know they're insufficient. That's who's in. And those who are out are those who are prideful. Those who think they have the resources necessary in and of themselves to do life apart from Jesus. They're out. So you're in if you seek the truth, no matter your class, no matter your race, no matter the type of sexual brokenness you come from, as long as you know you need the truth of Jesus. And the eunuch knows he needs it. You see it in this narrative. You see it because he risks his employment. He takes a year off. You see him reading the scroll of Isaiah with intensity. He's asking these huge questions of the text. He's taken this really long and dangerous journey into a bunch of people who said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And he goes right into the teeth of them. So you know he's hungry. You know he's heard that there's something going on up there in Jerusalem that he's got to find out about. Why does he do it? It's because there's an enormous emptiness inside of him. There has to be. It's the only explanation. And I think that he's come across the passage that we heard read earlier by Megan. In verses 32 and 33, you see that he's reading uh, from Isaiah chapter 53. Our passage that we read a couple minutes ago was from Isaiah chapter 56. And did you catch some of the language? It said, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Euphemism. And then God says this. He says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Well, can you see the eunuch? He's chomping at the bit here. He's wanting to know how he won't be cut off. 
He doesn't want to be considered a dry tree. He wants a name that's an everlasting name. He wants a name that's better than having the name of a son or a daughter. Well, how that's going to happen? Well, he reads it in verse 53, in chapter 53. And in chapter 53, he reads that this servant of the Lord, this, this really important figure, that he is going to be cut off. There's substitution at work here. That's the connection. The servant of the Lord is going to be cast off. He's going to be cut off so that the eunuch doesn't have to be. The servant of the Lord is going to be excluded so he can be included and receive the better name. He's hungry. He wants to know, how do I get that name? That's why he pleads for Philip to come up in the chariot with him. So do you see who finds the truth? All kinds of people, regardless of class, race, or type of sexual brokenness. As they're needy. That's who finds the truth. But how do you find it? That's our second question tonight. How do you find the truth? Well, here in these 15 verses, you have some tension here. On one hand, you have, does the truth find us or do we find the truth? To put it another way, do we become a Christian because God chooses us or because we choose God? And the narrative tells us the answer is both. The truth is that the truth finds us and that we find the truth. Look at how the truth finds us. Here you've got the eunuch on his return home. And he comes across the truth because an angel (laughs) sends a preacher to go to him in verse 26. And the eunuch up to this point has had sincere intentions. He's had a fervent desire. He's taken a year off work. He's traveled a thousand miles. He's reading the Old Testament, yet it's not enough. He still needs God to intervene into the real life and guts of his life and reveal himself to him. And then comes Philip. And if Philip doesn't go to the eunuch because he's sent by God, then the eunuch would have never moved beyond being a seeker. So really, it's a miracle that this eunuch's converted. His earnestness alone would not lead him to the truth He needed the truth to come find him. But you also see that the eunuch is the one who finds the truth, and so do we. The eunuch's not totally passive in this exchange. You see it. You see his desire when he invites Philip up in the chariot. You see his desire when he asks Philip to explain the scriptures to him. You see his desire when he asks Philip questions about Isaiah 53. You see his desire when he's the one who has the idea for getting baptized. He wants the truth. He did not go unwillingly. So how do you reconcile these two two things? Well, simply put, the way God finds us is in our seeking. The way God finds us is in our seeking. And sometimes that seeking lasts a long time. It lasts a long time for the eunuch. This had to be over a year journey for him. It reminded me of the conversion story of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a a famous apologist of the Christian faith. He died back in the 60s. He's British. Um, He's one who wrote Chronicles of Narnia and other books like Mere Christianity. And um, he tells the story of his conversion. It happened when he was an adult. 
And it began in 1926. In 1926, he began to believe that there was a power outside of himself. But it wasn't until 1931 that he became a believer in Jesus. And during these five years, between 26 and 31, he was wrestling through the, uh, the, the evidence of the Christian faith. And during these five years, he was building friendships with other Christian academics like J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And one night, Tolkien, another man named Hugo Dyson, they come into C.S. Lewis's house and they share dinner with him. And later that night, he writes in his journal and he writes this. He says, I have just passed from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. My conversion was not emotional. But it was more like a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. End quote. So did C.S. Lewis find God or did God find C.S. Lewis? The answer is both. His seeking was God's way of finding him. Same thing with the eunuch, too. And you see it when he asks Philip, he asks Philip this question after he quotes uh, in 32 and 33 from Isaiah 53. He says, who is this passage about? <laughs> Isn't that a great question? And Philip doesn't respond like a good postmodern. He doesn't say, you know, you have to recreate meaning for yourself. What do you think it means? No, no, no. In verse 35... It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. I think that's a really good synopsis to how we all come to find the truth. We find the truth in the scriptures through a person that's centered on the message of Jesus. In the scriptures, Isaiah 53 verses 32 and 33, through a person, Philip, centered on the work of Jesus. You see that um, you see that there at the verse end of verse 35, he told him the good news about Jesus. So let's break that down one at a time in the scriptures. You know, the New Testament gets a lot of play. Uh, you um, could go to church for a long time and hear very little from the Old Testament. So the New Testament, it's a good deal. But the Old Testament, that's all the eunuch has to work with. That's all Philip's got to preach from. But how could the Old Testament teach the eunuch about Jesus without Jesus' name ever being explicitly mentioned? It's a good question. And it really comes down to what's the Bible's main objective. Some people say the Bible's main objective is to tell, uh, it's just a collection of interesting stories about heroes with which we emulate. Some people say the Bible is just a, a, a collection of uh, moral principles that shows us the best way to live. Well, there are interesting stories in the Bible. There are moral principles in the Bible, but neither encompass the Bible's foundational objective. The main objective of the Bible is to tell the story of Jesus. Every passage, even the obscure ones in the Old Testament, point toward him. Even the ones where his name isn't mentioned point to Jesus. So you find the truth by looking in the scriptures. You find the scripture, you find the truth by, through a person. Just to, to look what eunuch had at his disposal. He had this experience of going to the temple 
wasn't enough for him. He had his own copy of the Old Testament, which was not cheap. Remember, he was rich. What enough for him? He's still in the dark. What he needed was a one-on-one personal interaction with someone that he might apprehend what the truth actually was. He needed Philip to show up there. The same is true for us. God really does use ragtags like me and you. And when you hear people tell their conversion stories of how they came to faith in Jesus, there's always other Christians involved. Today, I had a membership interview. So, you know, before you stand up here, you got to sit down with me. It's scary. Uh, I ask you what your worst sin is every time. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But I had a membership interview today, and sure enough, uh, this guy was telling me it was just name after name after name after name of the people God used to bring him to himself. Sometimes those people are ministers. He didn't, have, he didn't name any ministers this afternoon. But many times they're not ministers. And they proclaim the truth in places like a dinner table or on a walk. And if you look carefully at the, at the New Testament, you'll see there are more accounts of people coming to faith in small group or one-on-one settings than there are large group settings like this one. And the implication for us is that every one of us can be used in every kind of place to proclaim the scriptures. Chariots work. That's where it was for you, the unit. It wasn't at the temple. All right, so in the scriptures, through a person and about the good news of Jesus. I mean, I'm not, now, proclaiming the scriptures is important. But the scriptures can be easily misinterpreted. They can easily be wielded for, purpose, for purposes for which they weren't intended. They were intended to be interpreted with Jesus at center stage. And when you put Jesus at the center stage through the plot line of the scriptures, the message that comes out is that Jesus comes to us and he says something very compelling to our hearts. And the message is that when we were eternally condemned, when we were rebelling in our hearts, when we hated God, Christ came for us. He was a sinless one. He died on our behalf. He took the punishment we deserved. He rose again from the grave so that we could be perfect before him, not because of our righteousness, but his. That's good news. That's what Philip heard that day. That's what changed his life forever. Now think about it. This eunuch's been on this long, he's been on a journey for a long time, and I'm sure it started before he hopped in his chariot to go from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. I bet she'd been asking questions for years and years and years. And he finally found what he was looking for in verse 39. He was looking for joy. He went on his way rejoicing. See, joy is always the outcome of the gospel. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not despair. It's not defeat. It's joy. And joy is the natural outflow from a heart that's been included by an exclusive truth. So if you're in the truth, you know you found it, not because of your moral superiority, not because of your financial success, not because of your social status, not because of your racial dominance. You know that joy has come and found you and revealed himself to you in the person of Jesus. So friends, let me ask you if you found the truth. Let's pray together.
Lord, we ask that you, uh, I ask that you come and find me tonight. Lord, I, I, I desperately want to know this kind of joy afresh that we just read about in verse 39. Would you do that for me? Would you do this for my friends? Lord, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for people who come to us and share the truth with us. Lord, we give you, I give you thanks for all those people in my life. And Lord, we, we most thank you for the, the gospel. Uh, Lord, renew our hearts uh, through this meal. In Christ's name, amen.